Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm Dan Eikenson. I am the uh, director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. I'm joined on the podium by uh, my colleague, Jim Backus. He's an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He uh, works with my Trade Center colleagues and me on a variety of international trade matters. He's also the Distinguished University Professor of uh, Global Affairs and Director of the Center for Global and, uh, Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida, where he's from. Uh, Jim was a founding judge and twice the chairman of the WTO's appellate body. He's also a former member of Congress from Florida. Uh, he's also a former U.S. trade negotiator. Uh, in addition to wearing many other hats in the past and the present, uh, Jim chair, chaired the global practice at Greenberg Traurig, which is the largest law firm in the United States, one of the largest in the world, uh, for 14 years. Uh, Jim's also the author of a book called Trade and Freedom, which was published in 2004 by Cameron May, and a recent book published last year uh, by Cambridge University Press called The Willing World, Shaping and Sharing a Sustainable Global Prosperity. Jim also wrote the foreword to this book, which we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Craig Van Grastek is the other person on the, on the podium. He's the author of this book. Craig teaches at uh, Harvard University, uh, at the Kennedy School. Uh, he's previously taught at the American University's uh, School of International Service, at Georgetown's School of Foreign Service, the World Trade Institute, uh, and the University of Barcelona. According to The Economist, uh, Craig keeps a sharp eye on the politics of trade, and that's something that he you'd expect him to do, considering that he uh, has been a trade consultant uh, for a number of years, since 1982, working in over four dozen countries on five continents. His clients include government agencies and corporations, uh, and international organizations like the OECD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, and the World Bank. Uh, Craig received his doctorate in politics from Princeton uh, in 1997. He also holds degrees in international relations from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, he has a BA from the University of Minnesota, where he is from. Uh, he wrote the official history of the World Trade Organization. Uh, it was a book called The History and Future of the World Trade Organization, which he and I discussed with a few others here back in, in 2013. Um, and uh, so today we're going to talk about his new book, the timing of which uh, is really um, uh, excellent. Lots of questions are being raised uh, in Washington and around the world about America's commitment uh, to trade leadership, to the trading system. You need not look much further than the headlines we've seen this week in major newspapers uh, about questions being raised about uh, whether the United States is going to withdraw from the WTO, whether there's going to be an end to the trade war with China, whether we are planning to impose new sanctions on our allies uh, with respect to automobiles like we have uh, tariffs on, on steel and, and aluminum. Certainly the Trump administration has been a major departure from trade policy history. Uh, the last 13 administrations going back to FDR, 85 years of, of trade policy continuity has sort of been broken uh, with, with this administration. They see trade as a zero-sum game rather than as a mutually beneficial exercise that raises all ships and, and, uh, and fosters goodwill uh, among nations. So this book, uh, Jim is going to comment about it. I'm just going to just say a few words first. The main substance of the book is really trade policy. It's about U.S. trade policy. It's about trade laws and trade agreements uh, and coalitions and sanctions, the use of sanctions. 
institutions, socioeconomic developments that have brought other issues uh, to, the, to, the, to the fore uh, that, that make trade liberalization even more complicated than they've been in the past. He talks about creative destruction, populism. But the book is about more than just boring old trade policy. Uh, the book is about, uh, as Craig puts it, uh, it was inspired uh, by a profound concern that an overreaction against the perceived excesses of globalization threatens to overturn the foundations of an international order that not only worked out well during the Cold War, but is also adaptable and scalable to a new world in which the opportunities and dangers are more widely distributed. So the book really is about also statecraft, economic statecraft. And in Craig's words, economic statecraft encompasses the universe of practices in international relations by which states either employ their wealth to promote their power or vice versa. Uh, whereas in garden variety trade policy, garden variety, yeah, uh, both, both the means and the ends are strictly commercial. In economic statecraft, some of those same tools are employed in pursuit of larger aims. The instruments of economic statecraft include trade preferences, sanctions, the regulation of, uh, of or promotion of foreign investment, immigration rules, exchange rates, foreign assistance, etc., all of which may be directed towards such equally varied ends as peace, victory, regional stability, the strengthening of allies, the weakening of adversaries, security of of supply for food and fuel, and promoting positive change in other countries' internal or external policies. The book is also about the paradoxes of power and wealth. It says so right in the title, if you, if you don't believe me. Uh, what Craig calls power and wealth has gone by other names in the past and during other eras. The National Security Council has referred to it in the past as security and welfare. Adam Smith used to use the terms defense and opulence. Others have distinguished the high politics of war and peace from the low politics of trade and investment. You've heard the terms guns and butter, blood and treasure, and as Donald Trump promised to deliver in his inaugural address, prosperity and strength. So whatever we choose to call them, power and wealth have always been the principal means and ends of foreign policy. Governments must keep their nations safe while ensuring their citizens have access to the opportunities of the global economy. So as Craig writes, a country that pursues security without regard to its welfare risks stagnation and bankruptcy, and a country that pursues welfare without regard to its security courts indolence and invasion. Finding the right mix and steadfastly pursuing it is a supremely difficult task for a democracy in which lawmakers do not habitually defer to the president, government is more often divided than united, and voters are not fond of taxes or conscription. Yet, Harry Truman and his eight successors managed to pull it off. So, also, apart from, say, military attack, uh, there, there may be no damage that an adversary can wreak upon the United States greater than the self-inflicted wound of an ill-conceived foreign economic policy. So this book is also about hegemony and the dynamics that promote it and erode it. Um, the passing of the torch from Pax Britannica to Pax uh, America was relatively smooth, uh, if you'll excuse the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, there, the United States really failed to grasp that torch as it was being passed. Uh, but the point is that the US challenged the United Kingdom in the economic sphere, but not in the security sphere. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union presented a challenge in the security sphere to the United States, but they never really had the wherewithal to challenge us economically. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, the Japanese uh, presented a significant economic challenge, so serious that many people in Washington were advising that we learn how to say, I surrender, in Japanese. Uh, but Japan stumbled, uh, and uh, it, to, to demonstrate that fate is not set in stone, 
and probably this would not have uh, allowed J Japan to be a hegemon anyway because they were not challenging us in the security sphere. Yes, this book is also about China, at least China as perceived through the eyes of a waning hegemon. So Craig writes, Beijing challenges Washington in both the economic and security spheres. This full-spectrum competition will likely make the first half of our own century less predictable and more tumultuous uh, than was the latter half of the 20th century. The author also notes the fixation on the Thucydides trap, which has almost become a cliche here in Washington. We've been talking a lot about this for those of you who aren't too familiar with it. Thucydides, the uh, Greek historian who observed the Peloponnesian War and saw, uh, observed that Sparta reacted to Athens' rise, saw this rising challenger, and felt that the best recourse was to go to war uh, rather than continue to accommodate Athens' rise uh, and risk uh, becoming inferior and, and then subjugated. Um, Graham Allison of Harvard wrote a book about this uh, called Destined for War. He documented 12, uh, 16 cases in 500 years, 12 of which war was the result. It's called the Thucydides Trap. Um, Craig's book provides some hope that we will be able to avoid Thucydides' trap, and that is one of the things I hope that he'll, he'll talk about a little bit today. Um, let me stop there and turn the podium over to Jim, who wrote the foreword uh, in the book, so he's read it. Uh, it has uh, a lot of interesting things to say. And after Jim speaks, Craig is going to speak about his book. I think it's going to be a PowerPoint presentation. Then the three of us will sit down, have a little chat, and then we will uh, engage the audience for Q&A. So thanks for coming, and enjoy. Good morning. Thanks so much, Dan, and thanks to you all for being here. Um, I take great pride in being um, affiliated as a scholar with the Cato Institute. Um, I told Dan there are very few members of Congress in the aftermath who are later described as scholars. Uh, so uh, I'm happy to be one. Uh, I, I've surprised my colleagues at the University of Central Florida uh, uh, by the fact that not only do I write my own stuff, but I do footnotes too. I am grateful that I was asked to be here today also because uh, I'm a great admirer of Craig. I was honored to uh, be asked by Cambridge to um, write the foreword uh, to his book. Yes, I did read it. And uh, I encourage you to read it as well. One of the benefits, if we can call them that, of our current political era is that um, many of us who uh, defend trade, uh, defend openness generally, uh, defend international institutions, defend international uh, and global cooperation, have been required to uh, uh, explain ourselves. Uh, we've been required for the first time in a long time 
uh, to go back to the beginning and state and explain our premises. Uh, Craig's book helps us in the process of doing that with uh, uh, a very fine and detailed and insightful historical uh, account. Uh, but here today, an understanding of most of what he sets out in his book is missing from our um, national debate. In terms of American leadership in trade, in my view, um, our leadership currently is a failure. Uh, I'm not one who assigns that failure entirely to our current president or to those who are enabling him. Uh, they certainly deserve a share and a goodly share of the blame. But in truth, I, I see our failure of leadership as uh, including both the executive and legislative branches of our federal government and uh, both of our national political parties. This failure of leadership is um, accommodated. Uh, it is made possible, I think, by our failure of an understanding about our premises in trade, about why it is we trade in the first place, and as Craig sets out, how trade fits into our broader goals as a nation. I tend to uh, go along with what uh, are commonly called uh, the classical liberal thinkers, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, others. That's one reason why I'm here as a scholar at Cato. So I go back and read them from time to time, along with uh, you know, current OECD and WTO reports and law review articles and the like. And I think it would really be helpful if um, everyone in the current administration and everyone in the Congress would sit down and take a few minutes to read the dozen or so pages uh, that... Uh, John Stuart Mill uh, included 150 years ago as chapter 17 of his Principles of Political Economy. Because there he talked about what's truly at stake in trade. There he talked about the different kinds of gains we make from trade. And in looking at uh, how he uh, characterized those gains, we can see a lot of what is missing in our current thinking about trade in America that is contributing to our failure of American leadership. Mill saw three different kinds of gains from trade to a country. First were direct gains, basically the material gains that uh, we derive from importing cheaper products. It leads to a more efficient employment of the productive forces of the world. That's 
his fluent phrase, not mine. Note that he focused on imports. When was the last time you heard any politician of either party in our country speak of importing as a reason to trade? I've never heard any other politician in this country uh, speak in those terms uh, since, uh, I think, the Carter administration, uh, when I was a young trade negotiator working for a man named Ruben Askew when he was USTR. Yet almost any economist uh, would tell you that the reason to trade is to import. I think the fact that we dismiss imports in our public debate about trade and focus solely on exports uh, is one of the reasons for the failure that Craig describes in his current analysis of where we stand in U.S. trade policy. Uh, this tends to make us uh, mercantilist in our thinking. It tends to encourage protectionist thought. Uh, it tends to make us want to close our markets for imports because uh, we devalue imports uh, often by ignoring them in our debate. Mill saw, secondly, uh, a, a, another kind of gain from trade, indirect gains. And, and these indirect gains from trade that he saw are often also dismissed, ignored, devalued in the American national debate. They are also devalued in our assertion of our trade policy. What are they? The indirect gains from trade, Mill explained, are those that, uh, by virtue of uh, creating more competition, lead to more productive processes in production. In other words, what we would call competitiveness. Because we trade, because we benefit from competition that comes from trade, whether it's the other law firm down the street or the producer of some product on the far side of the world that we import from there to here, in trading, we are more competitive. And when we close our borders to trade, we deny ourselves the benefits of competition, and in doing so, we become less competitive. Ultimately, our economy does not grow, it shrinks, and in terms of trade policy, by focusing so much of our uh, public interest on areas in which we can no longer compete, we incur opportunity costs by denying ourselves the benefits that we could derive if we focused on other areas of our economy. As one example, 75% of U.S. GDP is trade and services. 90% of the economy of my state of Florida is trade and services. In 1994, 
we were able to conclude as part of the WTO agreement a general agreement on trade and services. It's been helpful. Uh, it is a good agreement. But it's far from what it should be, and we have failed to add to it in the quarter of a century since. There are many reasons, but one is we focused our energies on trying to deny ourselves the benefits of competition in other sectors of trade. There's only so much political capital that a trade negotiator has in coming to the negotiating table. Lastly, third, Mills said, and I quote him here, but the economical advantages of commerce are surpassed in importance by those of its effects which are intellectual and moral. What did he mean by that? There he was talking about the intangible benefits from trade that we cannot touch but nevertheless enhance our society, benefit our country, and thus should be a focus of American leadership. The contact we have with people from other places, people who live differently, think differently, have different cultures, have a different point of view. This causes us to re-examine our own way of looking at the world, and it leads to creative thinking. Throughout history, as Craig points out along the way in his book, more trade has always been accompanied by more freedom of thought. And this has been derived by the questioning that comes from meeting and communicating with other people who offer a different point of view. And this is not even discussed in Washington as a benefit from trade. But when you look at what's happening in the world, now economically and otherwise, this is something that is missing. Communication, as Mill said, is one of the primary sources of progress. Communication is necessary, and it can lead to progress in many other endeavors, nationally and internationally. Now, Mill was an idealist. Let me read you his conclusion. He said, the great and rapid extent of trade and being the guarantee of the peace of the world is the great permanent security for the uninterrupted progress of the ideas, the institutions, and the character of the human race. Guarantee of peace, permanent security, uninterrupted progress. This, this is idealistic. This does not seem to be what's happening now. In conclusion, I'd like to draw you to an issue that I think Craig will discuss in more detail, and that is the issue of our leverage economically as a country and how it fits into our trade policy and our overall geopolitical strategy as a country. 
to me, our current administration and many of uh, the members of Congress, both the House and the Senate and both parties, are vastly overestimating the economic leverage we continue to have in the world. Craig has charts that can explain that and that show that our overall percentage of the world economy uh, has diminished uh, in terms of percentage of GDP globally over the past several decades. This does not mean that our economy itself has shrunk. Our economy has grown rapidly and uh, enormously. We saw 2.6% growth in the fourth quarter of last year. It was just reported this morning. We are growing, but so is the rest of the world. And uh, things are not the same as they were when uh, I was a young trade negotiator or when my friend Bob Lighthizer was uh, a young trade negotiator. Uh, it's wrong to push other countries around, but we need to understand that it also ultimately doesn't work. And that's what's missing in a lot of our uh, trade leadership today. Um, long ago in this country, several decades ago, we decided that uh, we would be better off as a country if we had uh, rules because we foresaw that as the rest of the world grew, we would no longer be in the uh, uncharacteristic position we were uh, uh, in the early years after the Second World War economically. We also believed, and I still believe, as a country, that Mill was right in thinking that trade is not a win-lose proposition. It's a win-win proposition. As he put it, uh, one of uh, the benefits of trade is that we come to understand that the success of other countries economically is not our failure. Uh, that if all the world grows, then we can grow along with it, and that can become more of a guarantor of prosperity and strength. But in having rules, we have to understand we have to abide by them, and we have to uphold them, and we have to enforce them. Instead of doing so, our current leadership is ignoring the rules, violating the rules, undermining the institutions that uphold and enforce the rules, and bullying other countries. Instead of joining with our allies uh, in uh, a, a combined effort uh, to uh, bring the Chinese uh, through WTO dispute settlement to the negotiating table uh, on changing their errant economic ways, uh, we have decided to bully the Chinese and we have put them in a position where it's even harder than it would have been otherwise uh, to respond to our legitimate concerns. Trade is, as Greg told us, um, a global public good. It's a public good for us. It's a public good for everyone. And uh, a success of American leadership would be if we returned to understanding that, 
and translating that understanding into a US trade policy that would truly work for all Americans and also for all the others in the world. I again want to congratulate Craig and I turn the podium over to him. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you, Dan, also for your introduction. Thank all of you uh, for attending. Uh, I couldn't help but be struck at a lot of what Jim had to say. Uh, I just spent the first half of this week in the Bahamas, which is the last country in the Western Hemisphere that is outside the WTO, and I'm working on uh, getting them into the WTO and their accession. I think the very vigorous national debate that is taking place right now within the Bahamas over whether or not they want to be in this organization, a lot of what you had to, said, to say would be well received there, I think, or I hope would be well received. The issue being whether the Bahamas is going to be in the WTO by the time we have the next ministerial conference next July in Astana, in which case they would be the 165th country. There's also the question of whether in adding the Bahamas we're going to be subtracting another country. Because we may end up with a net number of 164 countries in the WTO if the United States leaves. So I will be talking more about the potential for the United States to be leaving the WTO than I will about, uh, about the Bahamas joining. What I want to discuss, I think we ended up somehow this advanced beyond where I wanted it to be. There we go. There's the start. What I want to discuss in the limited time we have, and I, I find that it's best in making a presentation to deal with, with really the, the essential points. I have a 500-page book, and I think the longer one's book is, the shorter one's presentation ought to be uh, in order to cover the real highlights. Then our discussion, then Q&A, I think that's where, uh, that's where a lot of the value can be had. So although I've been allotted about 30 minutes to speak, I don't know if I will cover uh, the entirety of that time. I want to talk about the major issues that, that I on earth here and put it in an historical and a political perspective. I was trained initially as an undergraduate, as an historian. Uh, as an undergraduate, then I went to Georgetown uh, to learn diplomacy. I went to Princeton to learn political science. And my perspective on these issues is very much that of an historian and a political scientist. So that means that I'm very concerned with issues of power. It's put, this puts me in a bit of a contrast with my friends who are respectively economists or lawyers. I think the, the principal perspective, and this is something I dealt with in my WTO history, the principal perspectives of economists and lawyers has been to try to create a system in which we downplay the role of power in relations between states, to try to, uh, from the economic perspective, create a trading system in which trade between countries is conducted on the basis of mutual interest and in which power is, is then reduced as a consideration insofar as that mutual interest is about the positive sum gains that we can have from trade. From the lawyer's perspective, the issue has been trying to reduce the level of power in the system, the importance of power in the system, by creating juridical equality between states and to ensure that there is the rule of law. And these are very important perspectives, but I think that they cannot eliminate the role that power plays in the system. And power, ultimately, is a zero-sum game. 
And the problem that I have with the current administration's policy is that, to refer back to something Jim was suggesting, it is essentially mercantilist in nature. Mercantilism is a reflection of economic relations as a zero-sum game as between countries. And if you listen to Mr. Trump, you very much get the sense that his perspective on trade is one in which there are winners and losers, and everything is transactional, and any gain that I have is necessarily at your expense and vice versa. And this is a rejection of the perspectives and the policies that have really animated US, US policy for the last few generations. So what I try to do in this book is place in an historical and a political perspective what has been the role of trade policy in the approaches that successive hegemons have taken in dealing with the world. So it's very much about how the British historically dealt with their role as a leader, then the US role as a leader, and now the challenge that's being posed to the United States by China, potentially as a leader, certainly as a challenger. So now why is it advancing here and not here? There we go. Okay, getting used to the system. Let me summarize my thesis in a nutshell, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I won't talk about in great length because we have only limited time. When I was a graduate student in Princeton in the 1980s, and at the same time I began my work as a consultant in trade, I had really a, a, a sense of cognitive dissonance between what I was covering in Princeton and what I was doing here. Because at that time, uh, the, the dominant paradigm in international political economy was that of the theory of hegemonic stability. And the theory of hegemonic stability, which really animates the, the, the argument that I make in this book, is something that at the time I did not fully uh, appreciate or grasp because it did not sit well with what I was observing. To be very simple about it, by the 1970s, the level of power in the United States and the level of competitiveness of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Japan had declined to such an extent that the people from whom I was taking my classes were all predicting that the United States was going to become increasingly discriminatory and protectionist. But I wasn't seeing that happening here. What I saw instead was one president after another, no matter which party we had, was devoted to the notion that the overall economic interest of the United States and the overall political interest of the United States was in maintaining and promoting an open trading system. What we did see, however, and this is something I tried some length to describe in the book, is a change in the definition of what trade policy is all about. So one of the themes of the book is how the expanding scope of what we define trade to cover, not just the movement of goods across borders, but also services, intellectual property rights, people uh, in the form of services, uh, capital in the form of investment, why the United States was advancing a broader idea of what trade policy was all about, and how that has affected the internal debate in the United States over uh, what are the consequences of trade and how the parties have become increasingly divided not over trade as traditionally defined, but as trade as more broadly defined has been. That I saw. I also saw an, an increasing uh, uh, discriminatory approach in which we're negotiating more free trade agreements than multilateral agreements, but I was not seeing a return to protection. Now, the theory of hegemonic stability suggests that the trading system adapts to the global distribution of power with markets tending towards openness when there's a hegemon and towards closure or discrimination when there is not. 
And I accepted that generally as a proposition, but again, I was not seeing it happening so much in our policy. But my second point is that the Trump phenomenon is actually overdue even if it's overdone. What do I mean by that? Not that I would endorse the personality quirks and all else that we get with Mr. Trump, but rather a protectionist appeal, understanding that in every country trade is going to have winners and losers. Mr. Trump's base is primarily those who perceive themselves as being losers in a globalized economy. We would have expected in the theory of hegemonic stability for this to have been an appeal made long before it actually was. Mr. Trump was able to capture his party's nomination, and I would argue the, a decisive factor in ultimately winning the election was by speaking to an underserved political market, by identifying that these were people whose interests were not being spoken to. And I would argue further that no matter what happens to Mr. Trump, and let's admit he, he might be around for six more months or six more years. We don't know, depending on what happens with the Mueller report, the election, and so forth. Uh, leaving aside how long Mr. Trump has in office, no matter what fate holds for this president, the United States and, it, and its partners will need to contend with a world in which relative U.S. power is diminished and China's power is rising, in which trade discrimination is a tempting tool of foreign policy. What do I mean by trade discrimination? I mean both positive discrimination in the form of free trade agreements that are exclusive, and negative discrimination in the form of sanctions. My argument being, and I'll elaborate on, on that a bit in a few minutes, that over time, in the stages of late hegemony, what we see in the United States is not so much a return to traditional protectionism, but rather through the administrations preceding Mr. Trump's prior to his return to protectionism, we have seen an increasingly discriminatory policy of greater use of sanctions, greater use of trade preferences as a tool. But the utility of both preferences and sanctions is declining for reasons that I will explain, although as they were alluded to earlier in the introductory remarks. The, the, the share of global trade that is accounted for by the United States has been diminishing at a time when the share of trade in the U.S. economy has been increasing, but I will, I will summarize that in a moment. Now, there are many sub-themes that, that I examine in the book and I won't talk about now. The place of ideas in policymaking, uh, the first time that I became aware of, uh, of the uh, confluence of, of thought that Jim and I have is when I attended a, a talk he gave on Grotius at the Harvard Law School about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, so Grotius, John Stuart Mill, Ricardo, Alexander Hamilton, uh, not to mention Marx and Lenin and Thucydides, they all do show up in the book, uh, but time does not permit that examination. A lot of my attention is devoted to the relationship between trade and security. So the current Section 232 cases involving steel, aluminum, possibly automobiles, possibly uranium also, uh, is something that I, I try to put in its historical context and examine how the evolution of ideas and practice in relationship between trade and sea power uh, in the US-UK relationship ultimately produces the type of legal instruments we're dealing with here. The domestic diplomacy of trade policy making, including the struggles between the branches, the parties, and their bases, I have a lot on that, but again, our time is limited, so I will just allude to it. And as I said before, the role of the hegemon in defining the scope of issues in the trading system. But let me 
simply say that those are topics I cover. Let me summarize for you the three main paradoxes that I deal with in the book. So the first paradox is the paradox of hegemony. And my argument is that a hegemon, which I will define in a moment, a hegemon is a leader that has to choose between either hobbling itself or enabling its challengers. What I mean is that a hegemon is generally defined as a country that has the economic motivation and the political power in order to provide that public good which is an open trading system. A hegemon is a country that, whose economic interest is in an open trading system because it is a very efficient economy that does well in an open trading system, and it also is a large, militarily powerful country that is able to convince or coerce other countries into opening their markets and establishing an open trading system. This is a role that was played by the British in their time, by the United States in its. Why is a hegemon necessary? Hegemon is necessary because an open global market is a public good. As defined by Samuelson back in the 50s, a public good is a very special kind of good. A public good is one that is non-excludable and non-rivalrous in consumption, like a sidewalk, for example. The sidewalk is an amenity that we all benefit from. I cannot exclude you from the sidewalk. By my using the sidewalk, I do not prevent you from using the sidewalk. It is thus non-excludable, non-rivalrous, but neither one of us wants to pay for it. No one wants individually to be the person who has to pay for the sidewalk or for national defense or for the various other public goods that ultimately we task the government with providing. And one of the, one of the great distinctions that we make is between those private goods that we expect the government to keep their hands off of and those public goods that we expect the state to provide for us. But what about an international public good? Who provides an international public good like an open market? Left to their own devices, most countries would have relatively closed markets. Most countries would have the same attitudes I was encountering in Nassau earlier this week, where absent a, an academic intervention, the typical politician's assumption of what trade policy ought to be all about is achieving a trade surplus. Uh, to the maximum extent possible, because we naturally tend to think in the same way that Mr. Trump does, unfortunately, about trade being a zero-sum game. And no one wants to be the one to invest the time and money and resources into providing that public good except in the presence of hegemony. And if you look historically, markets have tended to be open in times when you had a country playing the role that the British did in the 19th century or playing the role that the United States did in the 20th century. And in that very uncomfortable period between the decline of British hegemony and the rise of American hegemony, markets tended to be closed. So the theory of hegemonic stability suggests that we will have relatively open markets when such a country exists in order to provide them through convincing or coercing others. But when that country is in decline, things get very interesting. The decline that we're looking at is one in which the global redistribution of wealth has been much more rapid and much more disruptive in the period that corresponds with the WTO. I don't say this is cause and effect, but it is interesting to note that during the GATT period, there was really very little variation in the global share of wealth. This is, this is percentage of global GDP. If you take the totality of what was held by the European Union, Japan, and the United States, from the early 1960s until the late 1990s, 
There was almost no significant variation there, except as between the Japanese and the U.S. share. And I do have a chapter in which I examine the, the challenge that uh, Japan's economic rise posed for the United States and, and how, for a time, we thought that this was the real challenge. It was during that period that the theory of hegemonic stability arises. But the overall distribution doesn't change that much until we get into, I've marked 1995 is when the WTO comes into effect, 2001 is when China joins the WTO. A lot of people in a post hoc ergo propter hoc fashion suggest that this is why China grows. I don't think that is the case. But nonetheless, you can see the rapid growth of China, the rapid decline of the Western or OECD powers, uh, including Japan in that group. And this has been very disruptive. And this is an issue that I deal with in my history and future of the WTO, uh, but then pick up in this book, which I consider to be a somewhat more pointed companion volume to that history. Now, to look at it in a more direct comparison with the United States and China, and here I'm incorporating the comparison with the UK. If we take the UK economy as one and compare the US share relative to the UK, the Chinese share relative to the UK, we can in fact see that leadership is not a simple function of size. If it were, China would have been running the world economy in the early 19th century. China, as of 1820, was six times larger economically than the UK was. It's not just about size, it's also about the willingness to lead. China was very insular, we were very insular. So despite the fact that we achieved the same level of economic size as the UK shortly after the Civil War, it took another two generations before the leadership passed from the UK to the United States, and certainly there was a lot of disruption since. The relative size of the United States has increased fairly steadily since that time. But as you can see, China went through a long period of decline, a lengthy period of stagnation, and a very rapid growth rate uh, in the recent past. This is Angus Madison's way of, of calculating. He's seeing China uh, being almost equal to the United States by 2008. The World Bank figures are somewhat different. But this overall is the context in which the rest of the analysis is placed. The question of, can we have our cake without China eating it too? That is to say, when the British established an open world market, they created the, the opportunity for a series of challengers to arise. Now, not every challenger overthrows the hegemon. France failed to do so. Germany failed to do so. Ultimately, the United States did, but it was in a very cooperative way. And so it was very fortunate for the world that the passing of the torch that ultimately took place during and after the Second World War was as between allies. But that's not exactly the relationship between the United States and China. Uh, and so we're entering a very, very disruptive period as a consequence. So that's the, that's the paradox of hegemony. The paradox being, can a hegemon both create the global trading system that is within its interest and yet maintain its hegemonic status. Uh, and if you assume, as many economists do, that there is a law of uneven growth, and you find advocates of the law of uneven growth going back to Thucydides, it's not just my neighbor. I have my office in Harvard is right next to Graham Allison's office, which is only slightly intimidating. But Thucydides not only told us that, that uh, challengers and hegemons end up at war with one another very frequently, but also there exists a law of uneven growth, and both Thucydides and Lenin believe this to be the case. Uh, neither of them explain exactly why, but I think they tend to be right historically. So 
There's then the paradox of preferences. And for me, the paradox of preferences is that discrimination expands as its value declines, both in the history of British trade policy and US trade policy. There was a commitment in early and mid-hegemony to non-discrimination. And in late hegemony, both countries have tended to become more discriminatory in their trade policy. Both of them have increasingly saw the use of discrimination, positive discrimination, preferences, as being a useful tool of foreign policy and also a useful tool of industrial adjustment to the challenges being faced. But the problem here is that the decisions that the hegemon makes early in its hegemony to maintain open markets and to use its own tariff reductions as a means of encouraging others to reduce their tariff reductions, we've also reduced the prospective value of discrimination as a useful tool. So let me illustrate that with some data. This is partial data. I'll give you the full data in a moment. If you go to the late 1980s, at a point where we had only two FTA trading partners, when only Canada, of course Canada our number one trading partner, but Canada and Israel were our only two FTA partners. And then by the time we get to 2012, we have multiplied that by 10. We have 20 FTA trading partners. And in addition to that, we've established special preferential programs for the Andean countries, the Caribbean countries, the, the sub-Saharan African countries. Discrimination expands tremendously during this period. And for a time, it has the expected result, which is the share of imports that are arriving on a preferential basis increases rather rapidly. So in 1989, about 14% of our imports are on a preferential basis. By the uh, end of this period, by the time that the WTO is coming into effect in, in 1996, 1997, the share is exceeding 25% of our imports. But what's also happening? We conclude the Uruguay round and its effects, we begin to phase out or phase down imports in 1995 and we do so over a 10 year period and you can see the start of that. So our average MFN tariff had been 4% in the late 1980s. It starts to take effect in 1995 and over time, two different effects are taking place. One is we're increasing the amount, the number of countries through whom we are extending preferential treatment, but we are also cutting our average tariff, which means we are reducing our margin of preference. Which has the greater impact? I would say that it is the reduction of the tariffs that has a greater impact. We cut our tariffs in half, from about 4% to about 2%, notwithstanding that reduction. Uh, increasing our FTA partners, we go from preferential imports rising rapidly, and then by the time we're late in the phase down period of our Uruguay round tariff cuts, we see the share of preferential imports decline, and then stagnate, and then decline still further. Many countries believe that if they negotiate free trade agreements with the United States, that this is going to be of great tremendous benefit to them, that they are going to have access to the US market that they did not enjoy before. This is the view that you tend to find from presidents and prime ministers. When you get down to the level of the worker bees, the people who I work with, uh, and they examine the actual uh, tariffs that are in place, very frequently they discover to their surprise that there is not that much room for maneuver. So this I had to scan off the book. I hope you can read it. Uh, it's a little difficult, I know. But let me explain what's happening here. 
These are all of our FDA trading partners. And for each one of the countries, I have looked at two things. One is the difference in import growth from that partner. What is that? Zero is the average rate of growth of US imports for the period that we have had the FTA in place with that country. So if, a, if an FTA came into effect in 2005, let us say, uh, zero would be uh, the, rate of the rate of growth in total US imports from the entire world between 2005 and 2017. So if you're above zero, you are doing better than the world. If you're below zero, you are doing worse than the world. And then I calculated for each one of these countries that FTA partners' margin of preference. And I did that by looking at what we actually imported in 2017 from that country, calculated what tariff would have been paid had those imports arrived on an MFM basis, and uh, subtracted that from what was actually being paid under the FTA. And you can see that leaving aside for the moment our CAFTA DR partners, and I'll return to them in a moment, there is a slope. And that slope confirms that the higher the margin of preference, in fact, the higher the rate of growth of imports from that country. That the trade patterns are behaving according to what we would expect them to do, according to those preferences. Such that if a country has a very low margin of preference, we don't really see much growth above that which we would expect in the world as a whole. In some cases, as in Colombia's case, which is a real outlier, Colombia has done rather poorly since the FTA came into effect. And then we've got the special case of the CAFTA DR countries. Why have they done so poorly? Why has only Nicaragua had an above average rate of growth? Why have the other countries just barely kept their noses above water or in fact are a bit below? Uh, most of them are a bit below. Textile and apparel trade. Most of our imports from the CAFTA DR countries, most of our imports from Jordan are apparel products. What's the difference between Jordan and most of the CAFTA DR countries? Jordan has not only duty-free access to the US market, but very generous rules of origin. Nicaragua also enjoyed until 2015 very generous rules of origin. The rules of origin for the other CAFTA DR countries generally require that if you're going to import a, a garment from those countries, it basically has to be produced from US fabric. And if we require them uh, to take on the higher costs of, of using US fabric, we end up putting them in a position where they are barely able to keep up their share of the market over time. What's my main point here? My main point is that the data confirm that the value of preferential access to the US market is a function of how high the tariffs would otherwise be if the margin of preference has been reduced over time such that uh, in 1950 the average US tariff was about 35% and today the average US tariff for all imports is about 2%, we have over the course of our hegemony reduced the value of the preferential treatment that we might extend to a partner. And so we have this paradox whereby back when it would have mattered a great deal, we didn't offer preferences. Now that it matters very little, although there's some variation, uh, according to the partner and according to the terms of the agreement, now that it matters very little, we extend it to a great number of countries, but with relatively little effect. So preferences become a more important tool of our policy at a time when they are a less useful tool. And I observe much the same thing when it comes to sanctions. So as I argue, the paradox of sanctions is that there is a contrast between the political feasibility of sanctions versus the economic effectiveness of sanctions. And what I mean by that is, generally speaking, it is easier 
on a domestic political basis for the United States to impose sanctions on a country if trade with that country doesn't really matter to us. It is relatively easy to impose sanctions on Russia historically. And I have a chapter in which I examine US sanctions policy with respect to Russia going back to the 19th century. We have numerous episodes historically of the United States imposing sanctions on Russia and then the Soviet Union and back now again on the Russian Federation. And in each case, it has been easy to do because we don't have domestic constituencies in opposition to it because we do not have a lot of trade with Russia. And easy for Russia to slough off because we do not have very much trade with Russia. Whereas it's very hard, historically, to impose sanctions that are effective on a country with which we have a lot of trade, like, for example, China. And I have a chapter examining US-Chinese relations as well. Now, over time, it's very easy to understand economically why this is the case. You can calculate, on a very rough basis, vulnerability and leverage. Vulnerability is what share of US GDP is at issue in a relationship or in total trade with the world. So if we impose sanctions on a country, we can expect that to be costly to us in one or two ways. One way is simply by imposing the sanctions, that's going to impose an economic cost on us. Sanctions are kind of like uh, a labor union putting on a strike. You know that it's going to be costly to the laborers not to go to work and not to be paid. It's going to be costly to us if we cut off trade with a partner because we no longer have the benefits of that trade. The second cost may be that if that country counter-retaliates, uh, that may also impose costs on us. Over time, as our economy has gotten more globalized, such that in the early 1990s, 20% of our economy was caught up in world trade, and today it's more like 30%, although recently there's been a slight decline. I don't know if that's a blip or a trend yet. Uh, but about half again as much of our economy is tied up in trade as in the past at a time when our leverage has decreased. What is our leverage? Our leverage is the U.S. share of world trade in goods. And you can see that if you go back to the early 1990s, and actually I would love to have the data go even farther back, but the data source does not go earlier. But conveniently, it starts at a point where our leverage, as I'm calculating it, was higher than our vulnerability. And over time, the gap has grown tremendously. Now you can calculate that on a global basis. You can also calculate it on a bilateral basis. And I'll show you that data in a moment. But to, to concentrate on the one relationship that is most at issue here, it is the US-Chinese relationship. If you recall from the Tiananmen incident in 1989 into the middle of the 1990s, we had a series of annual confrontations in which the question was whether the United States was going to eliminate MFN treatment for China, which for many Chinese products would have meant a very significant increase in the tariffs. And these were across the board sanctions. Ultimately, Bill Clinton was obliged to crawl back in a rather humiliating way from the threat that he had made in 1995. The decision was made that notwithstanding the fact that China had not made the human rights steps that the United States was demanding, the United States would not impose the sanctions that, that he had threatened to impose. According to my calculations, if Washington were to assess across the board sanctions today, the pain inflicted on China would be about one third less than that same action would have achieved in 1995. But the price imposed on the US economy would be more than four times greater. And this is all a simple function of 
relative changes in the importance of trade to each economy, relative changes in the sizes of our economies. And so it's, it's something of a mystery to me as to why Mr. Trump believes that he is in a far stronger negotiating position than his predecessors were. The trends have worked against him. Now, this is not universally true. Uh, I have data on a lot more countries, but I'll just give you these because it's easier to see a small number. There are some countries over which the United States has more leverage today than it did a generation ago. So Cambodia, Vietnam, Nicaragua, these are all countries that have seen tremendous growth in their exports to the United States. In each case, it's apparel. If we decided that we wanted to impose sanctions on Nicaragua today, it would be very easy to do so uh, because Nicaragua is, is less than a full drop in the bucket for the U.S. economy. Our vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis Nicaragua is quite low. Uh, our leverage over Nicaragua is quite high and significantly higher than it was in 1995. Same could be said for Cambodia and Vietnam. These are the exceptions to the rule. Uh, China, as you can see, there has been a substantial reduction in relative U.S. leverage. Venezuela, a very substantial reduction in, in U.S. leverage, although in Venezuela's case, it's really a matter of uh, self-imposed sanctions that have, have led to their current plight. And I think it would just be, just be adding to the burden uh, if the United States took further steps. But overall, the trend has been as, as suggested in the, in the earlier data. So those are the main points. I have chapters that examine each of these subjects in greater depth. I use case studies involving US trade relations with the United Kingdom, with Canada, with the Middle East, Latin America, Russia, China. Uh, but as I say, time would really not permit a, a detailed examination of all of that but I hope that I've given you the, uh, the gist of the argument. So thank you. I look forward to our discussion. I look forward to our Q&A. Thanks. Thank you, Craig. I just want to kind of get this started. I want to make sure that, uh, that you all realize we talked a lot about kind of theory here, hegemonic stability theory. This book is... Is, is topical, it has a lot of uses and implications for the policy debate today, but as I told Craig, this is also an excellent resource. There, there are many, many details of U.S. trade policy, uh, certainly from the end of the Second World War going forward. Uh, I, I consider it a resource to go back and be able to see how, what issues were in play during the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement, um, to understand the domestic debates that were going on, uh, to to understand how we deal, dealt with Russia or developing countries. There are chapters dealing with all these, these aspects, and sort of through this prism of thinking about leverage and, and the exercise of uh, economic statecraft. So considered a resource uh, in that regard, and it's also a, just a live, interesting, uh, 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 useful subject. I just want to reiterate, to get this going, uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page with what, you're, what you were telling us. Uh, and then maybe from that we can just generate some questions. I want to get back to your theory of hegemonic stability. An open global market is a public good, meaning it's not ex non-excludable, non-rivalrous in consumption. Like other public goods, it tends to be undersupplied. Um, the hegemon has a motive to provide it because there's uh, economic benefits, economic efficiency for other countries to open up their, their markets, and it has the means, the political power, to provide that good. 
this worked, you observed this in Pax uh, Britannica, you observed it in Pax Americana, and then you say it gets complicated in late hegemony because of this, the law of, une of uneven growth, because the market has been opened, it, it, uh, the, the hegemon has given a channel for challengers to rise. Uh, and as it starts to get a little skittish about that, it starts having second thoughts about the multilateral system, and it starts thinking in terms of using bilateral and preferential and discriminatory tools. Um, and we've seen that, and the data that you show demonstrates that if a, uh, uh, a country like the United States is not particularly exposed to trade, as we have not been historically, to last year I think it's 27%, you, you noted that dip, if that, if that number is small, or if the, the share of the economy relative to the global economy is large, then you're pretty much immune from concerns about retaliation, uh, and you have uh, the, uh, the wherewithal to, to be sort of provocative. For the United States, the denominator, and that has gone down, our share of the global economy has shrunk, and our dependence on trade has increased, so we have diminished uh, our capacity to do that. And I think we see that in the U.S.-China trade war, right? Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the president to, 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 to end these, these tariffs because a lot of U.S. interests are, are adversely affected by that. Um, just want to make sure that we all are, were, uh, have the same understanding as I, as, as I have, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but and, and thank you for, I forgot to mention there's a chapter on Canada as well. Yes. And, and, and you, you mentioned that the domestic corollary to this um, uh, law of uneven growth is creative destruction. So whereas the United States in the scope of the world is getting jittery and getting concerned, there's also the domestic polity where we've had industries go away and the pace of change is rapid and people are having a hard time adjusting and that has created this political upheaval. Do you think, I mean, is there, do you have a sense of what matters more uh, for the rise of Trumpism? Uh, is it the domestic issues? Or the, you, you, you sort of said that this is, was inevitable and that Trump, Trumpism actually is a bit late to the game. Um, but you didn't speak about the domestic. I asked you just to focus on this. But if you can talk about the challenges, the domestic diplomacy, and where that has failed and where that has uh, contributed you know, more significantly to uh, America's sort of loss of, uh, of confidence. That'd be great. Well, there's, there's several different ways that you can take that issue. One is the struggle between the branches. So I do examine historically how this has been a constitutional issue and the, um, the conflict that is created through the, the Commerce Clause and the Treaty Clause and the question over whether our trade policy is made primarily as a matter of domestic industrial policy or our foreign policy and how uh, over time there has been this delegation, not permanent but, but sequential, uh, from the legislative to the executive branch. But that is a perennial struggle, and so I discuss that at some length. Yeah. There is a partisan struggle, which is partly about trade as traditionally defined, and there was this history whereby the Democrats had been for a century the party of free trade, the Republicans had been the party of protection. We reversed polarities uh, in the period from the late 1960s to the early 1980s. There's some very intriguing data now to suggest the potential, although perhaps not the likelihood, for a further reversal of polarities, such that if you look at the polling data, the Democratic base is more pro-trade today than, uh, than the Republican base is, although that's narrowing a bit as well. 
and there's some interesting trends coming out of the 2018 congressional elections there, which I don't cover because the book has to be finished uh, mm -hmm. largely by June of last year, but I was given a little bit of adjustment towards the very end. Uh, but ultimately, another issue, and I do deal with this, is a question that has uh, perplexed political scientists for a long time, which is whether when looking at the positions adopted by the general public and by their elected representatives, is it better to explain them in a sectoral or a class basis? Mm -hmm. That is to say, are politicians making an appeal to the specific sectoral interests of you steel workers, you soybean farmers, et cetera, or are they making an appeal to you of the lower classes, you of the middle classes, and so forth? And I, one of the things that's remarkable about the Trump years is it really has forced me to reevaluate what I believed about that mm -hmm. uh, in two ways. Uh, one is, academically, what has always interested me has been the struggle between ideas and interests. So there are economic ideas, there are legal ideas, there are ideas that, that can motivate us, and there are our specific economic interests as steel producers or, or soybean growers, as the case may be. I've come to realize that you have to take into account feelings. Right. And feelings are different from interests, and they are different from ideas. They are, they are an all to Think of it this way. We've got our head, our heart, and our gut. The sociotropic issues. Yes, and there are, there are the sociotropic issues, as I discuss, and that, that explains a, a lot of the, the sideways movement that we have had in the Democratic Party, where the trade skepticism is not simply on a commercial basis, but it also is the association of trade with other issues like income inequality and, uh, and social policy, environmental policy, and so forth. But also, Mr. Trump made an appeal not on a sectoral basis, but on a class basis. And a lot of people miss this, I think. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, yes, his protectionism manifests itself in automobiles, steel, aluminum, basically your manly industries. So there's something, read, read Bob Woodward's book, Fear, uh, on, on what Trump actually thinks about, about the manufacturing sector. To me, it's, it's quite a mystery how a man who's made his fortune in services really cares about not just manufacturing, but paleo manufacturing. <laughs> Leave that to the side. The appeal that he's making is not to steel workers, it's to ex-steel workers. Right. And this is a class appeal, a class appeal of uh, the, the, the smart guys over time have, have played a number on, on you and yes, you may not have produced steel for the last 10 or 15 years, but wasn't it great that you used to? And this is something that I would not have anticipated at all. It is, it is, a, it is a class distinction. But yes, in, in my examination of the institutional struggle between the executive and legislative branches, the partisan struggle between the Democratic and the Republican parties, and the appeal that Mr. Trump makes, so I have a chapter on what actually happened mm -hmm. in, the, in the 2016 election, uh, I think that I've been forced to revise my expectation that when people are thinking about their interests, that their interests are related to their current employment as opposed to where they fit in the class structure of the United States. And his appeal has been very successful in a nostalgic way, not to people's current interests, but to their, to their broader uh, historical sense of loss. And Jim, does, does, does Craig's description of the, the, the domestic politics uh, comport with your experience when you were in Congress? It was kind of a heyday for trade back when you were there, right? Well, I tend to try to forget my 
time in Congress, uh, uh, um, I'm no longer to blame. Um, but focusing here and now, I think there's a real difference. Uh, a pro-trade vote uh, for a Democrat in the 1990s, and oh, by the way, I'm a Democrat, um, was not an easy vote. It was not an easy vote mostly because of the inordinate influence of uh, labor unions and uh, uh, especially the AFL-CIO as a provider of um, uh, financial support for Democratic candidates. Uh, the opting out of the business community at that time from any support of Democrats uh, had the unexpected effect of um, enhancing the uh, more uh, skeptical uh, uh, views about business in the Democratic Party. So that was a struggle for someone such as me who favors free trade. I voted for free trade anyway. Now there's another dimension, and I think Craig has mentioned it. Uh, sociotropic is not a word I would use in a town meeting. Um, I was also forbidden uh, by my uh, staff at the time ever to mention the GATT. Um, but uh, a point I would like to add to what Craig said is I, I think he's basically right that uh, people are voting feelings more than interest. It's always been a puzzle to Democrats over the past generation why people would vote against their clear economic interest on taxation, for example. That's nothing new. What's new, I think, is the cultural dimension of all of this. Yes, I think people were voting economically because of perceived economic grievances about trade, even in many instances when trade had nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that uh, they had lost their previous uh, forms of employment. Usually it was due to automation technology. There are any number of empirical studies uh, that demonstrate that. Empirical is not a word I would have used uh, at a town meeting either. Um, but I think we're dealing here with feelings. And they go to the very heart of what America is about. A lot of the same people in a lot of these uh, challenged communities across America, uh, including some of my former constituents, are, are looking at a world in which they have very real uh, grievances against a system that has pretty much abandoned them over the past generation politically. But also they look up and they look around and um, America's different. The eternal verities that they have always uh, uh, shared uh, are no longer eternal, nor are they verities. Uh, there are different ways in their very own hometowns of looking at the world. Um, there are new languages that have not yet merged into English. Um, there are uh, new things to eat. There are new restaurants. Um, there are new religions. Uh, it's just not the way it used to be. And I think that is what Trump uh, was really appealing to, and I think that's what made the difference in his election. 
keeping in mind, of course, that he only got 46% of the vote. Um, now, this goes, I think, to the heart of what America is about. Is America an idea? Or is America an ethnic group? That's what's at stake now in our current debate. And um, I don't think at this point either party is putting forward uh, a hopeful uh, vision of America as an idea, an idea of freedom and, and liberty and equal economic opportunity. The things that we used to talk uh, most about in both parties are no longer discussed. Uh, and this, I think, is reflected in our trade policy. Because we're fearful of change, we're also fearful of, uh, among other things, being open economically. Um, I think we have to return to uh, America as an idea, uh, an idea about open societies uh, and uh, what they can mean to people in being able to be free and being able to make their own choices about how they wish to live. The only way to do that is to appeal to Americans as Americans, not as members of some ethnic group or any particular uh, slice of our national identity. Uh, we need to transcend all of that. Uh, and the way to do that is to offer the hope of the American idea. It's a very radical idea, uh, America, and uh, it's still a revolutionary idea. And we as Americans have a special obligation uh, to turn the idea into reality. Not to impose it on the world, but to offer to the wider world an opportunity to share it with us. And when we have a policy that turns inward rather than outward in commerce and in much else, when we turn away from international cooperation, from we tur turn away from the international institutions we're building and have built for decades, we're turning away from the American idea. We're becoming just like any other country. And that's not what we were supposed to be. Uh, that's missing in our national debate. It, it sounds like a well, sort of a long-term project, one that might not be able to save the WTO to, to, to make those kinds of appeals. But and, uh, that's just rhetorical. That's another question. <laughs> but but let, let, we're, we're running short on time, so let, let me see if the uh, the audience has any questions for Craig. Uh, wait, please wait for the microphone to come your way. I'll point you out, identify yourself, and then ask a question as briefly as possible. Uh, let's see. Are, are there, I'm sorry, are there other hands up too? Well, okay. Uh, go to this gentleman, get his question after this gentleman's question. We'll take two at a time. Please. Um, James Hembrother, I'm a retired historian. The uh, question for the speaker. Um, I was uh, intrigued by uh, your hegemic argument. And as I understood it, the United States was initially able to uh, maintain its hegemony uh, economically and uh, power-wise because uh, the challenge from uh, Germany and Japan was by allies rather than adversaries. And so it seems to me now the policy, correct policy to maintain that hegemonic position would have been through something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have incorporated more people 
into that hegemic framework and therefore preserved American power uh, rather than uh, diminished it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was uh, the man in the middle there. Yeah, see him. Uh, Fred Hochberg, I was in the Obama administration. Um, what What is it that we have not been able to convince or make the case to enough Americans that we benefited from this system for the last 70 years? And perhaps what could we have done differently to make that point much more clear? Because there's a sense that Donald Trump has tapped into that we've been a patsy, that somehow we've been the loser when, in fact, we've been the winner for the last 70 years since World War II. And is, is, there, is there a question on this end over here? Right. Anne? Ann Krieger, and I'm an economist, so the question is coming from a slightly different direction. But one of the things that economists always talk about is how sanctions are ineffective uh, when there are uh, lots of alternative suppliers. And the, one of the arguments for multilateralism, both on the anti-preferential trade side and on the anti-sanction side is the fact that it's very difficult among other things. You get yourself, even politically, tripped up very quickly the minute you're trying to do things politically. I think we see this already with President Trump, uh, with NAFTA, with the TPP, which he's canceled, and he wants the same thing uh, in, in NAFTA that he didn't, that he had in TPP that he didn't take, uh, in the tariffs on autos, and, uh, on aluminum and steel, where he's got the NAFTA, uh, partners tied up in knots and not Japan and so on and so forth. And it seems to me there's an economics tied to the argument that may go in exactly the opposite direction you're going in, not that you're wrong or it's right, but simply that it seems to me the multilateral aspect of things is important. One last comment is that the U.S. sanctions have been effective when they've been effective because of the financial sanctions much more than because of the trade sanctions. A lot to chew on. Okay. Well, let me just take them in order. Um, the question of the TPP, which I think is an, is an excellent question. The, the, the problem that we have is that uh, Donald Trump, in running for president, took essentially the Groucho Marx approach, which is whatever it is, I'm against it. So anything that Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama could be associated with, he had to be against. But the TPP is exactly the sort of thing that if it does not exist, we have to reinvent it. So you notice that we had been negotiating TPP, which we concluded, and TTIP with Europe. And Trump pulled us out of one and suspended negotiations over the other. But what has now been reinstituted? USFTA negotiations with Japan, which is very nearly the only TPP country with which we did not already have an FTA in effect. There's a few other exceptions, Malaysia. Vietnam, but principally it was a U.S.-Japanese issue in, in, in its weight, uh, and with the United Kingdom post-Brexit, and with the rest of the, UK, the, the European Union post-Brexit, which is to say uh, reinstituting under different names and with different emphases uh, negotiations over what would have been TPP and what would have been TTIP. However, a point that, that I make in the book and in other things that I've written is just because uh, the Trump administration wants to negotiate FTAs with these countries. We should not assume that they're going to be the same as those other FTAs. The Trump administration, I think, has fundamentally redefined what are U.S. objectives in these agreements, uh, which is primarily trying to transfer uh, the focus from creating opportunities to determining outcomes. 
That is to say, negotiate not free trade agreements, but mercantilist agreements. And what do we see that in? We see that in the redefinition of the rules of origin. We see that in including provisions that are intended to increase US leverage uh, in the future, including the explicit threat to withdraw from the agreement. And we see it also in the inclusion of this, I think, uh, extremely important provision in the renegotiated NAFTA, whereby, in effect, Mexico and Canada are prohibited from negotiating FTAs with China. And what the Trump administration, I think, is all about now in FTAs is not merely competing with China in negotiating them, but competing with China in negotiating them on an exclusive basis and trying to divide the world up into uh, competing economic blocks, which I think uh, is destined to fail if you look at the number of countries for whom uh, China is already a much larger trading partner than the United States is, notwithstanding the fact that if they look at the composition of that trade, they'll see that their trade with China consists primarily of the exportation of raw materials and semi-manufactured goods and the importation from China of finished products, whereas the, the trading relationship with the United States it is, is, is much more balanced in respect of uh, uh, how much of what we're importing uh, from those same countries is, is finished goods. Uh, but the Trump administration is pursuing something that is like TPP in its, uh, in its membership and very different than TPP uh, in its structure and intent. Now, uh, why we can't convince other Americans um, of the benefits of, of trade, that, of course, is something that has been a focus and a concern of friends of the free market going back about a generation in Washington. Uh, and there's any number of books that have been written about that. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that there are a few of us who are free trade Democrats, and I, I count two-thirds of, of us up here as, as falling in that group, uh, we tend to be a, a real minority uh, within the party. There is rising this new Democrat coalition, which accounted for uh, one-third of the Democrats in the House in the last Congress. I don't think we have final numbers on how many of the new Democrats are new Democrat coalition members, uh, but I believe that because many of them come from swing districts, uh, and are more likely to be less oriented uh, towards, towards the redistributionist wing of the party, uh, the new Democrat coalition is likely to account for a growing share, but it's still going to be not substantially above one-third. So my expectation is that if there's going to be an effective challenge to Trumpism in the United States, it really has to come principally from the Republican Party. And the question there is, are we starting to see cracks occurring? And I think just in the last days and weeks, in the conduct of yesterday's hearing, which I was catching up on between flights back from Bahamas, and uh, in what we're seeing opposition uh, to, the, to the administration's position rising in concerns over, uh, over the conduct of a trade war, the administration has been careful so far to try to minimize the economic cost domestically by targeting as carefully as it can uh, the, the sanctions list, but the rising level of concern within the agricultural base of the Republican Party is an increasing concern. However, I, I, if you look very carefully at the, the results of the 2018 uh, congressional elections, I'm rather disturbed by the fact that there's at least three new Republican senators who come from rural states 
where they replace Democrats, and if you look at the message in the campaign, the Democrats were opposing the trade war with China because it's contrary to the economic interests of the rural base of those states, and the Republican candidate who won is a candidate who was supporting the administration, sometimes full-throated, sometimes with an asterisk. Uh, but nonetheless, I have a concern that the longer that Mr. Trump remains in office, the more he's going to drag the rest of his party with him. So if we're looking at a one-term president, it is probably a containable degree of damage. If we're looking at a two-term president, the damage that is done internationally to the WTO, the damage that is done domestically uh, in the parties in which we may see only the Republican Party reverse its polarity and the Democratic Party only partially do so, I'm very concerned about what that does for the, for the dynamics uh, of the politics of trade in the country. Uh, Ms. Kruger, I'm, I'm glad to see you. I, I use a lot of your material when I wear my other hat as a, as a consultant dealing with developing countries. Uh, yes, the, the received wisdom from uh, economists is that generally sanctions do not work, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the capacity of other countries to fill in the gaps. Uh, we have a problem both over the long term and the short term. The long term is this is a reflection of the opportunities that the United States creates uh, in an open trading system. Not only the growth of its competitors like China, but the growth of its allies. Over time, Japan, the European Union, and China, and Russia have all increased their capacity to fill in the gaps economically, uh, making it less likely that the sanctions that we impose on a unilateral fashion will be successful. So one of the themes in my chapter on sanctions is the importance of maintaining uh, cooperation within the Western alliance. And in the short term, the problem is that this is something that fundamentally Mr. Trump does not believe in. And so the, the confrontation that I think has been moving on a rather slow pace, but it's going to accelerate this year over the, the consequences of undoing the JCPOA. Uh, only one third of the time do we find that sanctions work if Huffbauer, Elliott, and Schott are correct. Let's, let's just take that as a given. Uh, if, if they work one third of the time, that one third usually represents periods in which either the United States is the um, monopsonistic supplier or uh, the monopolistic importer of the goods, which is not going to happen in late hegemony, uh, or it is able to work in coalition in an oligopolistic fashion with its partners, if we do not value and honor our alliance structures, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to cooperate. And we've already seen in the past tremendous distance between the United States and the European Union in dealing with Cuba, for example. I think it's going to be worse in dealing with Iran, but it hasn't we haven't reached that point yet. I think we're, we're, we're gradually uh, headed in that direction. You do point out that, that financial sanctions uh, have been more successful than commercial sanctions. That's definitely true. Uh, although in the case of, of the US-Russian relationship, as I examine it, uh, uh, I think that the sanctions, the so-called smart sanctions, which relate both to the financial sanctions imposed on individuals and the travel sanctions that are imposed also on individuals in the US-Russian case, I think, have a greater impact on insulting the Russians than on forcing them to make a change. To the extent that Russia may feel obliged to 
change its policies as a consequence of sanctions, it's going to be because the European Union continues those sanctions, the European Union accounting for six times more trade with Russia than we do. And Putin, of course, has been trying to encourage as best he can divisions between the United States and its European allies and has been doing so rather successfully. Uh, but I, I, I take your points and I do not disagree with them. Excellent. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, thank you, Jim. Uh, I have nothing to add on sanctions. I do want to thank you, though, uh, Ms. Kruger, for the work you did uh, on uh, pointing out the value of imports, uh, which I uh, quoted and cited in my most recent book. So keep writing. Um, she's one of the leading international trade economists in the world. And um, uh, I'm unlike so many people who disregards expert advice. I think she might have something to tell us. Um, sir, um, I, I, I think you're right about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, one of the worst mistakes the president uh, has made economically was his first one to withdraw from the TPP. Um, I think we need to return to the TPP, and that should certainly be uh, a discussion in the next presidential election. I'm not optimistic that uh, most of our current uh, candidates in my party will agree with me on this. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, I think, part of the answer to the question we got from our, our friend who served in the Obama administration. Um, I, um, voted more than once for both Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama. But recall 2008, uh, when uh, Hillary said we needed a timeout on trade. Well, what would happen during that timeout in the rest of the world? Would they stop trading? Uh, 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 would they stop competing with us? And uh, Obama wasn't much better on the stump castigating the NAFTA, uh, not really leading. In the absence of leadership from the Democratic Party and from those who would uh, propose to lead the Democratic Party, we're not going to have any change in public sentiment on trade. It's only a president that can speak to the nation as a whole. No one member of Congress can do so, not even in this age of social media. Uh, this is something that needs to be explained. And we have not explained our premises. We have not explained why we benefit from trade and why closing uh, our doors to trade will cause us grievous economic harm. Um, this concerns me. And um, I've been writing about this recently. Um, I had an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, in my Cato role a few weeks ago. Uh, the journal chose uh, to uh, give it the following uh, headline, Democrats, free trade is your destiny. And there I simply pointed out some facts about where Democratic votes are coming from. These are the facts to which Greg alluded. Uh, it's simply not the case that uh, the Democratic Party consists of uh, uh, unemployed steelworkers. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, 
vote is largely found in the growing parts of the country that benefit from trade and want more open trade and understand how trade feeds innovation, imagination, and increased prosperity. Uh, a Democrat who said that uh, as a candidate for president would appeal to these voters who increasingly comprise the Democratic Party. Uh, but we Democrats can't always count, and um, so we haven't figured that out yet. I'm doing a longer paper for Cato uh, now, which is currently in peer review, uh, trying to lay out what I believe should be the uh, trade policy of the Democratic Party. Uh, on the list is a return to the TPP. And that would be my last point, uh, which is uh, the abandonment of the Trump administration, of our allies, uh, of our trading partners, of others in the world who depend on us to uh, help make the world in place in which we have the rule of law and not the rule of power. Um, Craig's right. Uh, with my perspective as a, as a jurist, as a lawyer, uh, I focus a lot on uh, the rules that are needed to enable the creation and the perpetuation of freedom. And the United States now is not uh, serving those rules, it's undermining them. It's not making the new rules we need, it's refusing to do so. And just back in the past few months from Indonesia, from Vietnam and Southeast Asia, I can tell you these people feel abandoned and uh, they are concerned that uh, for the reasons Craig explained, they will become, in effect, economic colonies of China. Um, and um, that's entirely our fault. On that note. <laughs> I've already encroached into your lunch hour uh, by 12 or 13 minutes, but uh, I think it was, hope it was worth your time. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Craig and Jim. Two sources of incredible amounts of knowledge. I'm sure they'll be willing to entertain your, your uh, questions during lunch, which is upstairs, that end of the building. There are restrooms on the way there. Please join us, and thank you very much for coming. Well done. Thank you, Craig.